This is Pretty Much Pop, a culture podcast trying to make sense of the culture landscape. Today we're looking at Me Too as depicted in recent TV shows and films. I'm Mark Linsenmeyer, watching my after-school specials all day long. I'm Erica Spires, and I refuse to say anything funny about this because I don't think it's funny. And I think the fact that you're going to try to say something about it that's funny, Brian, is quite appalling. Oh, man. And I'm Brian Hurt. And since we're committed to not bumming everyone out by talking about coronavirus, we thought we'd discuss this instead. (laughs) You know, maybe it's good that people aren't going to the office. They can't get assaulted in the workplace if they're at home. Unless, well, they can, but not in the same way. Have you heard that? Like, evidently, well, abuse, physical, and I'm sure some sexual abuse is up as well. Domestic abuse is through the roof. Yes, I know that. How do you know that? Because they've been reporting about it. It's all over the news. Actually, the sad thing is a couple weeks ago when this all started, there uh, were flyers in our apartment building that said, if you're experiencing domestic abuse, here's a number you can call. All right. Good podcast, everybody. (laughs) Well, I mean, I think the point is it's pervasive, right? We know this is pervasive. It's something that we want to talk about. Because it is something in the cultural zeitgeist right now, unfortunately, but at least it is being talked about. But I think we want to what talk about like how it is being addressed and is it always in the best way and how do we best go about talking about sexual violence, not just sexual violence, but power and influence in our media. Yeah, this had long been our, on our radar, but we didn't want to have just a discussion about, do you like Weinstein? Do you think that there's an overreaction? Like we didn't want to just deal with it as a political topic, but dealing with the depictions of it and how people talk about the depictions of it, that seemed something that maybe we could take on, uh, especially since this podcast is kind of talking about things from the audience perspective. We did try to get an academic who was more familiar with this stuff on with us, but like most academics, now she's frantically been preparing, you know, converting all of her teaching to video. So we already pushed this off a week and then we just, uh, you know, thought about finding a different expert and then we decided we should, let's just go ahead with it. You know, at, at the very least, we are people who are supposedly being educated by these things. So is it working? That's one of the questions. Yeah. And I'm going to actually walk back something I already said, and that's, this may not be the first and only time, I guess, this podcast. I know you introduced this as Me Too, Mark, and I guess in my mind I had thought we were being maybe a little bit more specific to workplace Me Too, and maybe that's just because of the things that we all decided we would watch in preparing for this, but you're right, Me Too is definitely broader than that, so I will ashamedly take back my earlier flippant remark, and I'm going to apologize in advance for my next one. So, with that in mind... I'm just going to apologize right now for everything all of us say in this podcast. A blanket pardon. Okay, so whose bright idea is this? Did I come up with it? I don't know at this point. we have, It's such a mind meld in the group. We already showed with Lego that we no longer know who came up with any yeah. particular. Actually, speaking of that one, it was my idea, but I didn't really know what to do with it. And Mark said, oh, let's do it. And so at that point, I disowned it. So that was a, that was an orphan idea at a certain point. It's hard to to take ownership over any subject because then you feel so responsible for when it goes wrong, when it <laughs> when it likely will go wrong. We should list though what the shows on the table were. I mean, I think that I maybe pushed this forward 
as something to do sooner rather than later after watching the morning show on Apple TV. And I thought that that was really damn well done. At least I, <laughs> that, that was my initial impression. And it did have, I was still thinking at that point, let's focus on the workplace things, but you know, was finding that it's very hard to segment and probably you shouldn't segment in the same way that people we're only concerned about preventing rapes. We don't care about that lesser stuff. <laughs> like that sort of line of thought never works. That never goes anywhere. And that is wrong for so many reasons. So in the same way, like the topic just did expand. So morning show, somebody want to else, else want to introduce the next one just to get them out there. Bombshell, the 2019 film about uh, Roger Ailes and the three women who were affected by his actions. And there was a different, a previous version of that story, right? I didn't watch the previous version. I didn't either. No. Okay. Unbelievable on Netflix. And I haven't seen Confirmation. Did one of you see Confirmation? I had suggested it and I kind of forgot about it. Oh, and then no. I, didn't watch it. I did watch it, but I oh, think good. the things that we think say about Bombshell will probably work for Confirmation as well because both of them are just a depiction of a thing that happened that people remember and with actors imitating the real people. And so I think a lot of the same, why are we watching this? Are we supposed to feel triumph as viewers or is it just a historical record? Is it, you know, just, I think a lot of the same things that we would talk about. And because this got pushed off for another week, I did end up at Erica's suggestion watching some 13 Reasons Why, which this is my mention of after school specials that talking about educative material aimed at teens or teen dramas or something like this that tries to stuff both of them together, I think, as most shows of this sort do these days. That could be a whole topic in itself, but it was a... Oh, my goodness. The, you know, the, the amount of critical blasting that that show has gotten for its depiction of actually more suicide than sexual assault, but sexual assault as well is just really interesting in itself. I had a little more patience with it than I thought. Let me just put it that way. <laughs> Well, all the kids who are in it, I think, are like really, really talented. Uh huh. But I also I started the second season and then I dropped off, and I'm so glad I did. But I was as I was reading these articles, there's a lot to talk about still with season two, even if you didn't watch it, and how they portrayed things and how we feel about possibly sensationalizing and misusing some terrible things that can happen to people. I admit I did not watch Thirteen Reasons Why, and I am that's okay conscientiously objecting to it. I think that's kind of arbitrary on my part. And, and I know that it sensationalizes suicide in a way that I'm really uncomfortable with, based on my understanding. I'm not going to judge it because I haven't seen it. But from what I know, I don't want to watch it. That really gets back to Me Too and entertainment. Dramatization by nature sensationalizes. Or if it doesn't sensationalize, it certainly reduces real things down to something that can be consumed. And can we really get any truth out of it as a result, right? I mean, anyone who has been touched by this, and that's millions and millions of people, must they watch something like this and say, well, yeah, that's fine. But, you know, I had a real experience. And this is, even if it's based on a true story, this is still just something that's being put on the television. Is it impossible to do service to real tragedy through an art form? And that applies to Me Too. It applies to a lot of things. I mean, we're talking about Me Too right now and sexual assault. That's a great question, Brian. I was actually just, you know, bouncing ideas off of my husband here. And one of the things that he brought up, we were discussing some of these articles was like, what is okay? What should be deemed okay to portray? And like, in one sense, if you don't portray it in the media, some people might not really know it's an issue. 
they may not see it, especially young kids. Man, I remember when I was in high school, I was such an idiot, you know, and I'm not saying I'm not one today, but I remember specifically we were in a class, I think it was in psychology, and she was talking about depression. I've probably talked about this on the show before that I do suffer with depression. At the time, I did too, but I didn't know what that looked like. And I just thought you were supposed to pick yourself up by your bootstraps. You know what I mean? Like I I was raised in that good old, good old boy, red state. At the time, it wasn't red, but it basically is like, pick yourself up, make yourself feel better. And I remember literally saying that out loud in class, like, I don't believe in this, which is so stupid. And who knows who I hurt in that moment by saying that. But that's all to say that some kids are probably going to watch a show, whether it's 13 Reasons Why or something else. Law and Order SVU, who knows? And they see something depicted like that, that might be the first time they realize, oh gosh, like I've seen abuse like that in our school and I don't want it to lead to something else. It could be a good educational path for them. I'm not saying they did it the right way, but like Mark, you were talking about PSAs. Like that's how I learned about sexual assault probably was through probably a silly PSA. So are you suggesting that it doesn't have to be great or honest with a capital H, but it creates awareness in a way that maybe it's not for someone who's been through it. It's for someone who doesn't have that awareness. I think maybe it is. I hope it's good. I hope it's well done. And we will definitely discuss that in the podcast. Like, what do we think makes it well done or not? And certainly there are a lot of not great depictions out there. I watched 13 Reasons Why partially because it was in, like, everybody was talking about it. And I was like, oh, whatever, I'll, I'll see what it's about. And I found myself actually getting sucked into it because just from a storytelling aspect, you know, it had a lot of cliffhangers. It kept you watching good performances. I personally didn't feel like it was sensationalizing it in the way that a lot of the articles were saying that it was. But that's my personal experience. And I know for some other people, it might be extremely triggering. And, and, and so it is hard to say, like, what's okay? Before we dwell on that more, can we maybe sketch out the limit cases? <laughs> that is, ones where it just unquestionably is done poorly, sensationalizing. Yeah, let's do it. Which I think there are two categories of those. There's the use, you had called it fridging, Erica, where yeah. it's included in the plot, like maybe to motivate the male hero's revenge complex, like his exactly. significant other gets raped or something like that. Maybe a step up from that, but or at least laterally are the just straight up like sexual assault revenge films, which could be, you know, just like many a ninja movie where, you know, your family gets killed or somebody gets the hero of whatever, whatever sex, whatever gender is almost killed and has to take revenge. And so I remember like one of the notorious films when we were kids was I spit on your grave because of that was like such a big, it was that in faces of death. And there were a couple that were just like, these are so terrible. You're never going to get to see, you know, as 12 year olds. And then I, so I actually watched that about, we had shutter. So I just watched like a bunch of crappy horror movies. That being one of them, I saw that there is a remake of it and a sequel to, to that. Also this film revenge, which is a new film, but that was one that shutter was highlighting, which is basically the same thing. In other words, somebody is raped and left for dead and then goes on a killing spree of some sort. I don't know. Is there anything that makes that a step up from merely trivializing it and making it a moment in the, the male heroes? Cause at least it's the female hero that is rising up and taking power and taking revenge in a disgusting way. Or are those equally objectionable? What do you think, Brian? You're the writer. There's a certain laziness to it, for sure, from a writing standpoint, right? Because you're using it to drive plot and you're using it to establish 
character villainy for the perpetrator in, in the most broad stroked obvious way. And I think of the examples when you mentioned it, Mark, I, you know, immediately some came to mind. One was Braveheart, right? And we have the noble who is invoking prima nocta, and he is essentially raping a woman in order to establish the villainy of the British. And then I thought of totally different movie. Um, I don't remember if it was part one or two, probably part one, Kill Bill, where the bride, she's in a coma, and we don't see her being raped, I don't think, or we see an attempt where she finally thwarts it. And I just feel like if this was your first thought, creatively maybe come up with your second thought or your third or your tenth. Like, come on, you can really do a lot better than this, especially knowing you're turning off so many people of both genders who are having to watch this. And it's certainly not why I go to be entertained. I mean, it seems like this happens in things that are more entertainment based. I mean, it's a Quentin Tarantino movie. Of course, that's what it is. Versus things like the morning show, which isn't always nuanced, but I think in a couple really key ways related to this topic, it is in ways that I appreciate. And I'm sure we'll get back to that show. Erica, have you just ever made yourself sit through one of those like limit cases that I'm talking about? Oh, yeah. No, no, no. I, I mean, I immediately thought of James Bond. I think that probably goes for a lot of, if not James Bond, things like James Bond. There's usually some sort of event that sets off the hero's journey. And it's always, well, not always, but usually has to do with a woman being killed or raped or both. When you grow up in that environment, though, and you're watching those movies, I don't think it hit me as a kid, you know? I was just like, oh, yeah, that's what happens to the women. Like, it didn't feel real either, though. You know, it was like, oh, this is an entertainment thing. I don't think until it started to become depicted in a more realistic fashion and much more blatant, and I was a little bit older, did it start really bothering me. And I started noticing that women were marginalized in this way. And now, because I'm an actor, I think of it also like, oh, you just killed off. Oh, great. What? She got two days on set and that's it. You know, <laughs> like it also becomes an issue of just like, hey, employability, give that lady some more lines. You know what I mean? But yeah, I'm, I'm interested to hear about the morning show and more about that and how they did it. Did you watch it? Did you not? I did not. I watched the first episode. Really didn't grab me. Right. I think one of the articles we looked at complained about that maybe early on because it was kind of objecting that it was dwelling too much on the man who had been dethroned and the drama surrounding that. But it wasn't really till the later episodes in the series where it really got to like a depiction of one of his acts of victimization, like made very educatively specific. Let me put it that way. That you could see how she could get in her, herself into the situation, and you could even still see his point of view about it. I guess this is one of the the issues to throw out: is do these depictions have to be in some way balanced? In other words, is it a sign of weakness about the message if you focus on the perpetrator at all? Oh, good point. I mean, if you think about Law and Order SVU, like we're always focused on the heroes of the story, right? We're never really focused on the victim. The victim shows up in the beginning. They might show up a couple different times throughout the episode, but it's not really about them. It's about their situation and it's about the heroes and what they do to improve that situation, hopefully. In the same vein as Unbelievable, you would say, correct? I don't know. I don't think, I think it's different in Unbelievable. In the case with Unbelievable, we got to see quite a bit of Marie's journey and what her fallout was. But we're not seeing the perpetrator. He's never a point of view. And I haven't seen enough 
of SVU to really comment on it, but you're right. My understanding is those shows focus much more on the investigators, whereas yeah. Unbelievable sort of was a mix of the investigator team and the victim, but really never coming at it from the side of the perpetrator who is always presumed to be a monster. And it did dwell on the cops who did it wrong, right? That part of the main plot, why it's unbelievable, is this woman is assaulted. She goes to the police and they don't believe her because she has to deliver her story so many times and the details don't always match. So they push back finally and are, you sure this happened? Are you sure you didn't make this all up? And so the one main police officer who's kind of responsible for that, they do a good amount of character work with him and how bad he feels when he screws up the end. It doesn't like forgive him, but it does dwell on it in, I think still uh, in service of the education, right? Because you want to see how somebody that is trying to do a good job could make this kind of mistake, right? They even make you, I think the audience think a little bit like maybe she is making up, like, obviously this is not going to be the carry through, but you know, you don't know how it's going to go. Maybe there's a fault. Maybe it's a cry wolf thing. And so it wasn't entirely predictable, at least at that point. Yeah, that's a good point, Mark. If we want to identify who is supposed to be educated by these different things, I think the person who is educated by Unbelievable is someone who is in a position to believe or not believe something and to maybe set aside some of their preconceived notions about how someone should either behave or how they should, or things that they should or shouldn't say that would make you say, well, that person doesn't seem upset enough for this to have happened to them, or they don't have an ironclad story or whatever it is. So most of us aren't police, but we may be in positions to hear someone's story and have to draw our own conclusions about it. Yeah, you're right. I think that's a great point also is that it did focus on the people surrounding her in her life who sometimes believed her and sometimes didn't, and how murky that can be for all of us who have probably at one point or will be at one point in our lives in that situation where somebody chooses to tell us something and we have that responsibility on our shoulders. It's difficult. And I think the show did a really great job of, yes, it was entertaining, but it also was super informative. And they said that even the real Marie Adler in real life was very impressed with it and thought it was a great depiction of what happened. And I think this is where we can draw a contrast to the morning show. And since you haven't seen it, Erica, and some of our listeners might not have either, it's... I wouldn't call it a Romana cliff exactly, but one of the storylines is the fall from grace of a morning show anchor played by Steve Carell. The, the character's name is Mitch Kessler, and very similar to what happened to Matt Lauer, even down to some of the details of you know, a button in his dressing room that would lock the door, you know, those sorts of things. That being said, he actually is one of the point of view characters of this story. And we see him in his you know, quiet moments sometimes. And I think Mark was mentioning this earlier. One of the episodes portrays they're out of town on an assignment and he gets a young woman who works for the company, kind of a low-level employee, back to his hotel room. And they end up having sex in a way that he is totally controlling the power dynamic. And I don't believe she ever utters the words no, but at the same time, it's really clear that she doesn't have any power in the situation, and she completely views it as having been sexually coerced. Now, we see this character of his, at one point, seeing the Harvey Weinstein thing playing out, and saying, in all honesty, what a creep, 
right? He doesn't see himself as being the same thing to this. Uh, to the same point as later on, we see him after he's been fallen from grace, he's talking with a movie director played by Martin Short that the character's name is Dick Lundry. And, and I think he's supposed to be something of a Roman Polanski or something like that, right? Someone who we all kind of mutually agreed upon dirtbag. And here he's still like making these dis- and Dick Lundry is saying, yeah, you know, we, you know, we need to make a stand. We've all been railroaded. And Mitch Kessler is saying, well, we need to draw a distinction between what I did and what you did. So he's still equivocating and thinking that what he did is really very different from being an actual rapist or something like that. And again, I don't know if, if it's all that instructive or even interesting to say who this is intended for from an instructional or educational standpoint, but it's for all the dirtbags in the world, people who have been in those situations where, you know, if there's this uneven power dynamic, what looked like consent maybe wasn't quite as consensual as that person might have thought. The fact that it was a show that could take its time, it's not just a movie, it's not bombshell, and had all these, you know, it's basically just an ensemble show about the workings of a TV show. And it could go on for season after season, even after this plot line completely goes away, like it conceivably could, because there's quite a few different characters that are given the narrative spotlight, you know, that are the center of attention. So in terms of analyzing this particular happenstance that, you know, gets it kicked off and that plays out throughout the show, there's room to explore the roles of everybody that were involved. So a lot of it is also on Jennifer Aniston, who plays the co-anchor, who she certainly knew that the Mitch character was sleeping with a lot of younger women and in fact kind of made fun of some of them, you know, thought that they were being foolish to fall in with. But so there's a, an open question that's carried forward of how culpable she is and how culpable she will let herself admit that she is because she really doesn't. That's one of the sort of points of growth during the season is that originally she's just, I'm not going to let this touch me. I can't believe that my partner, this bastard, did these things and got this edifice we've created in trouble. But between exploring her and the business people behind the camera, the people that both work with them and above them and their various reactions. Like it seemed like a pretty, from this complete ignoramus's point of view, a pretty detailed, if not actually fair look at the situation. Did you enjoy the show? Are you recommending it? Yes, I strongly recommend it. This is actually the only one. So I thought of my wife actually did a, for her master's, a domestic violence concentration in public health and social work. Why isn't she talking to us right now? That's a conversation Mark and I had last night. Explain to everyone why she's not on the podcast, Mark. She doesn't generally want to put herself, well, besides she just doesn't want to be on podcasts, but she doesn't want to make herself watch most depressing things like this. But she watched the morning show first and she was very into it and she recommended it to me and rewatched some of it with me. So like this was just an independently compelling enough show, even though some of it was hard to watch, that she found it really appealing. I think this aspect of the show was really well done. I think the network power plays and all of that part of it going on is a little tiresome. I don't enjoy watching some other aspects of the show. I'm paying for Apple TV. I guess I'll keep watching it. But if they ever give us new ones, if if new programming is ever made in this world, <laughs> I will watch new programming. Well, I would love Erica's take on, if you do get around to watching this, there's a musical number from Sweeney Todd that Jennifer Aniston is doing with 
one of the other characters, the Billy Crudup character, who's one of the executives, who's like one of the kind of new to the scene executives. So he's going to clean house. He's going to support the characters that we actually like. And it's that, what are the songs from Sweeney Todd? Like, I'm going to protect you. It's Nothing's going to harm you, not while I'm around. Yes. And putting that in that context, I don't know. There was something actually very affecting about that point, even though it was like this weird, <laughs> why are they singing in the middle of the show? <laughs> it was very out of character for the rest of it. And of course, had all the normal auto-tune problems that make TV music unappealing, but it still worked. It wasn't a musical. I mean, there was a context for them singing. Yes. It wasn't like a... Zoe's where they were just singing all of a sudden. <laughs> but it was still like, why do both these characters know this song so well that they can perform it impromptu perfectly? <laughs> like, there were some fantasy elements, let's say, <laughs> to that aspect. <laughs> I want to see people suck when they're singing <laughs> in TV shows. Yeah, like, just let, let them, them suck. suck. That's fine. I remember, on a total aside, the movie Sling Blade. There's this scene where... Who's the guy who's actually... The dirtbag. The dirtbag. Boy, that word keeps coming up a lot. It's not Dwight Yoakam. It is Dwight Yoakam. Okay. So one of the characters in the movie, Dwight Yoakam, and he has a garage band, and they're practicing, and they are so terrible. I remember Mark just singing the praises of finally seeing... And they weren't even like bad in a good way. They were just bad in a bad way in that movie. And your appreciation for just... And that they even had like a musician doing it, too. That's just like a lousy band that playing in the garage. Because we all know that. It's relatable. Hearing like the kids warm up before battle of the bands at a high Ugh. school, like that's the sound that no one should ever hear. But then when Billy Bob Thornton and John Ritter engage in that beautiful duet of Sound of Silence, I mean, that really uh, took me out of that film. Okay, never, <laughs> no more Sling Blade. Go watch that if you want to see if I just made that up. Yeah, you can tell how uncomfortable this whole topic is now that we're talking about Sling Blade. Although there was a similar, was it? Sling Blade, you know, somebody who's being domestically abused. And so this character basically sacrificed himself to kill Dwight Yoakam's character. So there, it's relevant. Yeah, I knew there was something when I brought it up. <laughs> One of the articles, I believe it was this, Unbelievable has delivered a rare, honest portrayal of rape survival on TV. It should be our new blueprint by Harriet Hall. This is on The Independent. One of the things that she talked about in here also was how Marie's character was not always a reliable narrator in life. So, you know, she was a, a kid who was tossed around from home to home. So she was just used to not being believed on most things anyway. I think that was a really interesting aspect of that particular show because it had the murky waters of the character. We didn't just feel badly for her and believe her. We had to understand that there was some difficulty in her past where she did lie sometimes. One of the things I thought was interesting here was it parallels in a way, in a way, with Bombshell. Not always the most likable characters in that one. And yet, we have to put aside whatever we think, whether it's a political or just a personal thing, put aside those things to just take the moment to believe that people are telling you the truth when they're telling you about violence. Is that just a more honest portrayal of how these things work? It's easy to make, to have someone with a heart of gold who's assaulted. Yeah. Easy to like that person, but that's nobody in this world. Right. It's more sophisticated, though, storytelling, isn't it? Rather than the examples we were pointing to earlier, where it's like, oh, they were just these wonderful humans who were killed or raped and then somebody had to give the comeuppance and give the revenge to the people who did it. 
And now we're talking about women who aren't always the easiest to listen to sometimes and certainly hated by a number of people. And yet that doesn't justify any of the things that happen to them at the workplace. And then you have this character, Kayla, played by, by Margot Robbie. Who is the only, like, not actual named person. Like, she kind of stands in for, I guess, a number of different real women. But, right, there's not actually a person named Kayla, whereas everybody else, Megan Kelly and them, Gretchen Carlson, were celebrities imitating TV personalities. Exactly. Yeah. Watching this, there were definitely some really difficult things to watch in it. But I thought it did a really great job portraying what that power dynamic can look like, especially when you're around those types of total dirtbags who know they're a dirtbag and decide they're going to be it anyway. In the, in the case of Roger Ailes, it seemed pretty obvious that he knew what he was doing was wrong, did it anyway. There's that old aphorism that everyone's the protagonist of their own story. Actually, I think it goes everyone's a hero in their own mind. Don't you think even Roger Ailes thinks that what he's doing is okay? Yeah. Even if it means the fact that he has to view these people as really being less than what he is in order to justify it, right? But still, like, I think I'm a good person and I squash bugs and maybe that's all people were to him were bugs. And not justifying it, of course, but trying to get in if you'd really want to be in that guy's head. But trying to, like, understand if he really thought what he was doing was wrong or not. I don't know the answer to that. I think he must know that there's, like, a lewdness to his behavior that's not moral. But I think he would justify it to himself, if I had to guess, by saying like, well, yeah, but I gave them something for that. I gave them this job. They wouldn't have been on TV if not for me. He holds the purse strings. So it's so transactional that it doesn't have any moral weight one way or the other. It's just, I get a thing and they get a thing. Yeah, maybe. See, I don't I don't know. It seems like I'm just thinking of the defenses, you know, by and about Bill Cosby, of just an expectation that like, if you're successful, you have that kind of power, then I don't want to say in their minds, it's women are are there for the taking and they love it. They want to be around you. They want your power. So it's just seeing it's a culture of entitlement, we can say, and just feeling like those are the standards, like, especially when you're dealing with an old guy like Roger Ailes, it's just not clear that this is something that he came up with in his own mind, as opposed to this was kind of an expectation that this was not beyond the pale. How did you both feel about having a composite character in a story that was otherwise full of actual people? I know we talked about this with Chernobyl as well. This is a different story and maybe a different things at stake in terms of what we're telling. What did you think? There are a couple of things. One is I don't know how you would have had it be a real character and depict what you did with Margot Robbie because I don't know that anybody would consent to that. Who worked there and say like, oh yeah, you can depict me, you know, in the office scene or whatever. So I think it was a safe way for them to go. And I also like how they handled the ending where by the end, Kayla walks out because she realizes that nothing's really going to change. And so she decides to leave and, you know, change something on her own because she's not going to be able to change anything from the inside. I thought that was really neat because it gave us a ray of hope for hopefully what young women like or men or whomever is being hurt in the workplace can look at an example like that and say, I can always leave. Not everybody can always leave, but at least it gives them some ray of hope of giving the power back to them. Yeah. A lot of the articles we looked at regarding bombshell was just, you know, as in the case with Chernobyl that we discussed before, were just how accurate was this? And if there are divergences from what really happened, is that always bad? There's a video that I will link folks to it, which actually has Megyn Kelly and one of the women 
represented by the Marco Robbie character and some of the other actual people in there talking about what was accurate, what was not, how they felt about the movie. And I remember at one point the Marco Robbie character says to Megan Kelly, you know, you were abused a long time ago and you didn't say anything. And so that's your part of why I was more recently subject to what I was. If you had spoken up at the time, then, you know, maybe this wouldn't have happened. Maybe this would have helped people. And, you know, the actual Megyn Kelly in talking said 100% this did not happen and would not happen because the way that this movement, this is just her words again, is moving forward is that women don't blame each other in that way. But she defended the existence of the scene in there because she thought that, you know, for an audience, like this really should be an issue that comes to light. If you're making this decision, you got to consider what can I actually accomplish? And clearly Megyn Kelly going through that situation, having been harassed, but it didn't last that long and it didn't really affect her career. She was able to just kind of blow Roger Ailes off for a while until he stopped bugging her and she was able to get her own show still. She felt like she could do more from the inside than the outside and was only eventually able to take him down by the fact that she had stuck in with it. And if she had quit at the time, if she had walked out, then it just would have been another person walking out. It wouldn't have taken him down at the time. I don't think there are any easy answers to these moral questions, but it's fine to bring them up. What do you think about that as like a, as a moral philosopher, right? About that kind of argument in general, like are people culpable in scenarios where they are not the abuser, but they are around it and not outwardly, it's not like they can do much to change it. So I'm trying to think of the right way to put that. That was a yes or no question mark. So I will expect a yes or no, and then we'll move on. Uh, I no. will just point to the limit case of the Nazis. And we had a, an episode in Partially Examined Life on the banality of evil, Hannah Arendt, talking about it's not like people in that situation in a country that is ruled by a totalitarian dictator could just say no necessarily, but yet a lot of people did. <laughs> and that's what you have to do to fight injustice. And so, yeah, it's, it's just a hard – as a moral philosopher – Yes, it's a hard moral truth that if you're in the middle of a fucked up situation, there are no good ways for you to act. There, <laughs> I would like to think that I would put enough stake into advancing my career that I would just say, fuck this and go off somewhere else. <laughs> As evidenced by the fact that I'm not part of any major institution to date. <laughs> yeah, that's a hard one for me. Go ahead, Brian. You're saying something? Oh, no, I'm... You, there's enough moral philosophizing going on among the two of you. <laughs> oh, okay. I'm gonna, I'd like to think is just a sentence that never needs to be completed. <laughs> Come on, man. You don't know. I'd like to think that if I were making a show called Unbelievable that was about this thing, that I wouldn't make a full 70 or 80% of the screen time sort of a run-of-the-mill cop film. <laughs> were you not bugged by this? That like the sales point, the unbelievable part, like, it didn't actually connect up with the main characters, the cops investigating this stuff, until the very last scene of the last <laughs> – like, it does thematically come together in a satisfying way. But at the time, I was just like, more of this? Am I just watching Mindhunter here? Like, that's how I felt through a lot of it. No, because I love those kind of shows. So that really <laughs> appealed to me. <laughs> so are we back already to – 13 Reasons Why, or is there something else? There is that other article about sex education. So I didn't see the season of that where this is an issue. I just watched the premiere. Did you watch that show, Brian, Sex Education? This isn't the animated one. No. With Big Nick Mouth? Kroll? What am I thinking of? Big, Big Mouth. Mouth? 
Oh, this is the one with the X-Files. Scully. Jillian <laughs> Anderson is uh, using her British accent. Yes. I watched the first couple episodes and it wasn't doing much for me. I didn't think it was as funny as it thought it was. So I stopped watching it. This was some time ago. Oh, I think it's fantastic. It's one of the best cast shows I've seen. So on season two of Sex Education, one of the characters who's usually there and for comedic relief, she's a very sweet character and not incredibly book smart, is on a bus and notices – if you haven't seen Sex Education, there's definitely – there's some drama in it, but there's a lot of lightheartedness as well. So you're not expecting anything bad to necessarily happen. She's carrying a birthday cake that she's just tried to make and and it's just awful. And then all of a sudden she like notices that there's a guy behind her. And he's wanking behind her. And she ends up getting off the bus and it like messes up the cake. And she's upset because the cake's messed up. But in the meantime, she has she actually has semen on her pants. And she makes this big deal of it when she gets to school because she's like, oh, these are my favorite jeans. And her friend's like, we need to go to the police and put in a report. And she's like, what are you talking about? Like, why? And she's like, well, you were assaulted. And she's like, no, it was fine. She's just mad about the cake and her jeans. She doesn't think of it as a sexual assault. And her friend, being a good friend, makes her go and takes her with her to report this. And it's a recurring theme in the next few episodes that this girl is having a really hard time with it. She doesn't realize she's having a hard time with it at first. She doesn't even realize it's hurt her. And it takes some time for her to realize that her behavior has changed because of it. It's a really interesting depiction in that it's not a quote-unquote big deal, right, to this character. Or in many in many shows, they might just play that for comedy. But the show takes itself seriously and says, no, this is a real problem. And it doesn't matter how small it is, this person violated you. And it seems the way that they portrayed it is really how it could happen totally. right? someone, you know, minimizing it and really absolutely having to kind of go through this process. No, it is something that kind of can happen in real life. I, you know, definitely had some, some situations in, in rehearsals where people think they're fooling around or we're doing stage combat or whatever. And then all of a sudden something awkward happens and then you just stop yourself and you, you start laughing about it. And then it, afterwards you realize that, oh, wait, that was a little more traumatic than I actually realized that it was. And I think certainly things like that happen in high school because kids don't really know what they're doing half the time. And then all, you laugh about it, you laugh it off. And then years later, you look down and you're like, oh, that was actually kind of traumatic, wasn't it? It takes a while. Well, you're not a high schooler, but you have a reaction to things and the intent behind them doesn't always matter, right? What happened is what happened, and you're going to process it in a way that keeps you safe and keeps you sane and all these things. And again, it seems perfectly reasonable in fiction for it to, I mean, it's good to see it happen in the same way on screen, because then someone, where it happens to them in real life, they don't have to be in that position to say, well, I didn't think much of it at the time, so I guess it must not have been a thing. Because not thinking much of it at the time can be part of it. And I think I feel better about I think a lot of the actors in sex education are just a little bit older than they're playing, some quite a bit older. And I think that's helpful, too, to have these scenes played out by people who are a little bit more emotionally and even sexually more mature than the characters that they're playing. Because then when you're playing out some of these scenes, it's not as traumatic as it would be for an actual 16-year-old to be doing it. Which brings us to Pen15. No, we'll save that for another time. 
<laughs> I was referring to the 25-year-old high schoolers and 13 Reasons Why. But I don't know that they're necessarily all that. <laughs> I guess I just assume that people playing high schoolers are way older than they're supposed to be. I'm just actually looking up. Dylan Minnette was born in 1996. So what does that mean? So yeah, he was at least 20 when the first season came out. Anyway, I guess we'll see when they're 40 and they still look like, uh, <laughs> they still look the same. <laughs> if that's the way that these things work. Yeah, we should say a few words about more about that just before we go. So they got so much, I guess first that it was a book. So somebody saw this book and said, this would make a good TV show. And I didn't, I don't know what the conversations were behind that, but I'm sure that both like this will be exciting for people. This will have suspense. It will have some mystery. You'll be sucked in and want to see through to the end. And yeah, there was a lot of that suspense in there, which I actually found kind of irritating. <laughs> Erica, did you? No, like, because inside of me, <laughs> there is still a tween who gets excited by cliffhangers like that. <laughs> I just felt like if you just gave me the 12th and 13th of the reasons why, that would be plenty of reasons why for the purposes of the narrative. You don't need to set up all these other characters in a whole ecosystem of mean teenagers well, yes, who then yeah. turn out to be not so mean as it goes on. But that's just, you know, then they have those resources to work with through the rest of the show, that we've set up all these characters in enough detail that maybe you like them and you care what happens about them. And so then a different one can be in distress and like, there's just more to work with that. I'm glad I actually did watch into season two because that was clearly after they received all the critical backlash that season one was this unholy melding of an after school special and, you know, a trashy Beverly Hills 90210. What are the, the guys that do the like American horror story? I mean, I guess we did not let our wa daughter watch Glee. Oh, I, I definitely don't think my mother would have let me watch this show when I was, when I was that age. Uh -huh. mm -hmm. I don't know if there's any human being who's old enough that it's appropriate to watch the show, but yet would be <laughs> like in the target audience. I'm sure there are. Like, I think it's for music <laughs> teachers. It's for high school teachers. I was more thinking 13 Reasons Why than dwelling on Glee. But in any case, by season two of 13 Reasons Why, they'd gotten all this feedback. And so now like we're going to put in the mouths of the characters – all the objections that people in the audience had to this, like how could this person who committed suicide and left all these tapes, you know, was engaged in these machinations. Isn't that kind of a bastard thing to do? And, you know, really trying to get into nuances of it. And, you know, it's hard to hate a show when those actors are just acting their hearts out. <laughs> like, I know. Really difficult stuff to do for young people or anybody. So ultimately, I don't know if I'd recommend it, but I can't say that it's crap in the way that I wanted to when I started. Does hanging a lampshade on your bed decision really make it a better one? Or is it just a... No, they're commenting on their terrible premise in season two. No, I mean, God. It's just throwing good money after bad at that point. Again, I haven't seen this program. I am not judging it. Well, but then some of the articles we looked at were about the season finale of season two, which had actually one of the a sexual assaults involving one of the male characters and how that drives him. This is like already a character that's been kind of driven to the edge. And so he's going to do a school shooting, but he doesn't do the school shooting and just sort of how triggering and how ex explicit that whole thing was. And did they need that? Whereas this was actually something maybe unlike the book. I don't know, you know what the background of the book was, but it seems contrived. Whereas this was based on a real incident. And the way that they kind of play that out is the guy that committed it 
is also being abused, as is revealed in season three, the little bit of it that I got into, and just thinks that it's like no big deal and tells the kid to get over it. This happens to everybody. So it really does seem like more like the the thing from sex education that you were talking about, Erica, where it's describing something, you know, now that we have this platform, how can we round up more stories of this sort that really happened and inform the public you know, about them and about the misconceptions surrounding them and the fact that this boy who's been abused is actually even attending like a club of women survivors, but he's not allowed to kind of admit that he's also a survivor, that he doesn't feel comfortable at that point and, you know, definitely not going to go get help. It becomes more straightforwardly public service messagey, <laughs> but that's probably not a bad thing for that kind of show. At the same time that every time they do that, though, then they'll do something else, you know, with the way actually that season three develops. I saw an article about, oh, now you're saying that the rapist from the first season was a rounded, full human being that deserves our sympathy as well. And like people objecting to that. So we're getting back exactly to the first issue that we started with, which is, are we allowed in having depictions of this sort do we have to be morally unambiguous? We are pointing out this terrible thing that happens and the person that did it is a monster end. Or do we say, as this show says, hurt people, hurt people. <laughs> and if you're going to show people that are committing acts of this, then it's also interesting and valuable to see why they got messed up in this way, both immersed in a culture where this was seen as okay, but also just, you know, being personally tortured and, what happens to them after they're found out and accused and what kind of life they can live after that. And, you know, isn't everybody a human being? So I think that they're trying to hold the line in this show on, yes, everybody is a human being and people do horrible things, but like, you know, you still ultimately need to, anybody can be a protagonist. I mean, yeah, it is ambiguous, right? It is. It doesn't excuse it, but it they're trying to explain it, I guess, and show the nuance. Whether or not that's helpful or hurtful, I guess we won't find out right away. I do know when I was in Michigan a few weeks ago doing Carousel, which is just, you know, a fraught show anyway, about violence and uh, specifically domestic abuse. We had talkbacks after every show with this woman who was from the domestic abuse center there. And the first thing she said was to believe the women and to also not judge them, you know, if they decide to stay. Like there's a reason everybody is on their own journey, kind of. And I asked her at the center where they take care of these women and sometimes their children who come there for help, do they also recommend people or see the people who are the abusers? Because oftentimes those people are hurt, so they are hurting. And she said, we used to, but now we refer them to a different place because they want to specifically focus on those who have been abused and are reaching out for the help for that. So. They see it, but they also try to separate it. I think there's something to that. It's not equal. It's not an equal treatment, right? To be abused and to abuse someone else is not the same as being abused. And I see how in a TV show, yeah, these are just people making a TV show and they make clumsy decisions, right? And someone is really can do something in season one and, you know, we've moved on in a story arc sort of way and make them do other things to keep the show. Marky, you said interesting and valuable or interesting and informative. I forgot your words. And other shows aren't called on to be both of those things, but shows about abuse are. And it's tough. And these aren't always social workers. In fact, they're not usually social workers who are making these programs. They're artists or they're creators and they're doing their best, 
but you know things happen and it's not always going to be exactly the way we might want and they're really not where they're not doing their best because they actually didn't consult people who might actually have a better idea right that is their best right is, it, yes well, their own personal just, best yeah their own person right whatever it is i'm sure at least by season two 13 13 reasons why i probably had a fleet of psychologists <laughs> consulting but yeah yeah but you know like things like that definitely they they can be damaging and I think also to see oneself depicted as a victim so frequently in media brings a sense of maybe familiarity to women as, well, I guess this is what happens. So you don't want to depict it in such a way that you're always depicting it. You want to show other sides of it. You want to show women who are strong and maybe they can be damaged or bitchy, but it's not because they were raped. And that's like another trope that we see a lot in television. You know, a lot of these articles were pointing to its shorthand to show that somebody has depth is to put in a rape story. And I don't think that's okay either because a lot of people have depth with or without a rape. So we got to get smarter about how we write and how we put out stories for people. I'm not saying they shouldn't be there. You know, the the masses will decide whether or not they want to watch it, free market. But I think all of us and when what we consume and what we create can be more mindful of how we're depicting characters and why. And are we just relying on an old tired trope rather than actually giving real true depth without the shorthand of rape? That seems a good last word. I was thinking the same thing. Yay. Thanks, Erica. Mm -hmm. Oh, God. It's weird to, to make such grand gestures about this really, really sensitive issue. I think it's good that we talked about it no matter what. Like we we tried to get somebody on who was an expert. It didn't work out, but we still wanted to talk about the topic because it's an important one. It's kind of everywhere right now. And there and like we said, there's some pretty good ways to to talk about it and there's some not awesome ones. Maybe we'll do some not awesome ones in our supporter only audio to be recorded immediately after this. But we'll say goodbye to you all, the rest of the world, the public facing that's not the way to say it. The public audience. <laughs> Farewell. Thanks, everybody. See you next time. Get more Pretty Much Pop at prettymuchpop.com. Get bonus content for every episode at patreon.com slash prettymuchpop. Pretty Much Pop is part of the Partially Examined Life podcast network, and it's also presented by openculture.com.